Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And the subject of today's episode is thinking like an economist. But if you're hoping to expand your toolkit and to come away from this episode being able to uh, run a regression, uh, that's not exactly what we mean. Well, we have an author who will be joining us. Her name is Beth Pop Berman, and she is she has just written an absolutely fabulous book. And Jack and I are totally agreed on this. And the book is called Thinking Like an Economist. But I imagine that listeners are already wondering, you know, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, I am here to let you know that this is the water that you swim in, to use a Jack analogy. So, Jack, I wondered if you would just give people some examples of how how they are already thinking like economists when it comes to education, or how they're being nudged in that particular direction. Yeah, so I think if we want a really concrete example to try to wrap our heads around, an easy one is thinking about class size, right? So class size uh, is something that gets talked about in education all the time, thinking about what is the right number of students in a room, uh, how many students should each teacher be responsible for. And, you know, teachers prefer smaller numbers than they by and large currently have. And we could think through this in a number of different ways, uh, right? We could actually run experiments to see, like, in which classrooms are kids happier? In which classrooms do we end up with teachers who stay in the profession longer? Um, and the way that it is so often framed for us is around student standardized test scores. So um, that's the outcome variable of interest. And then, of course, right, making class sizes smaller is something that's going to cost money. And so what's the sweet spot there in terms of getting student standardized test scores up for the minimum number of dollars? So there's an example of thinking through that the way an economist would, rather than saying, well, what do we value, right? Um, we value strong relationships between students and teachers. And if we start with that um, and then think through, right, well, what is the kind of atmosphere that we want to have in a school, that could eventually produce a price tag. And that's not how an economist would think about it, right? An economist would encourage us to think more about the efficient allocation of resources by trying to measure how much our outcome variable of interest is changing based on the way that we're changing the inputs. Jack, you actually sound kind of like an economist when you talk like that. I'm wondering if, if maybe you chose the wrong career. Well, I've been leading a secret life that I haven't been telling you about uh, over in Europe. I am uh, Professor Dr. Dr. Johann Schneider, uh, who's a famous economist. So just don't, don't tell anybody over at the University of Zurich where I work. Okay, now to the main event. Our special guest is Beth Pop Berman. She's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Michigan and the author of a great new book called Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy. If you're a regular listener, you may recall a recent episode we did with historian Lily Geismer about her book Left Behind and how the Democrats tried and failed to solve inequality by embracing free market solutions 
solutions. Well, Berman set out to try to understand a related question. When and why did everybody start thinking like an economist? So the book is arguing that over this period of time, from about the 1960s to the 1980s, this new way of thinking about policy really spread and became naturalized in the United States. And what I'm calling an economic style of reasoning kind of moved from academic and policy spaces into Washington, where it really changed how we thought about problems. And when I say economic style of reasoning, I'm talking about kind of a basic econ 101 microeconomic way of thinking about problems, focusing on incentives, efficiency, trade-offs, you know, weighing costs and benefits, these kinds of things. The book also makes a political case that while economic reasoning took hold among Democrats and Republicans alike, it ended up limiting the former in a way that we're still living with today. The book is basically doing two things. So one is following how it actually came to pass, right? The specific communities and people who who transmitted this. And second, it is arguing that this had long-term political consequences, particularly for Democrats, and that this economic way of thinking appeared to be very neutral and had a lot of appeal to it for its analytical power, but also conflicted with a lot of the values that Democrats had traditionally advocated. And so in the long run, it ended up being constraining to Democrats. And so while the book is mostly historical, the larger argument is this is still something we we live with, that we live with the results of this today, and you can still very much see it in, in policy now. Thinking Like an Economist chronicles the rise of a distinct way of thinking about policy and what is and isn't possible. What Berman describes as economic reasoning is an approach that's grounded in economics, but has come to shape how we think about, well, almost everything. Whenever you hear words like choice, competition, and efficiency being thrown around, that's economic reasoning at work what this economic toolkit has is it has this ability to define what makes good policy, you know, and it's through a very particular lens, but it is a lens that feels neutral in a lot of ways, right? Because nobody wants to argue for inefficiency, you know, nobody wants to say, oh yeah, we should, we should make government less efficient, right? And, you know, and it's a way of thinking about what makes for good policy that very much makes sense in its own terms. And at the same time has this, like I said, appearance of being neutral, but it does both carry its own values within it and it is in tension with other kinds of democratic values. And that's, you know, small D democratic. And that's where you see the constraint really coming in for Democrats who, who sort of remain wedded to this space. So, Jack, I want to pause here so that you can help us with a definition. And I know you're going to laugh when I tell you the word that I want you to, to define. It's efficiency. <laughs> See, you're laughing. Uh, now, I'm betting, I'm betting that you, you know exactly what Beth Pop Berman is talking about when she uses that word. We use it all the time. But I find that when it's used in an education context that it's a little bit mysterious to me. I'm not entirely sure what it refers to. So can you just give us a definition so that we know exactly what it's referring to for this episode? I'm hoping that our... Listeners who are economists don't beat me up for this on-the-fly definition, but I think as I would describe it, it's about maximizing outcomes while minimizing inputs. So if you think about the chief inputs being expenditures, and there are of course different kinds of inputs, but 
Many of them can actually be transformed into expenditures, so we're largely thinking about dollars there. And then you're you're identifying your valued outcomes and trying to find out how you can get the greatest quantity of valued outcome for the smallest investment of dollars there. And you know, I think that there are reasons to think that's a good thing, right? There are definitely more and less efficient ways of realizing particular kinds of outcomes. So, you know, if we wanted prepared teachers working in all of our classrooms, we could insist that they all get PhDs. But of course, we know that even though that would be time-consuming and expensive, there are lots of things that educators would be learning uh, and kinds of habits of mind they'd be developing in PhD programs that are not really going to benefit them in the K-12 classroom. As you mean like going on and on? <laughs> that was, I, I see what you did there. Um, but, you know, I think a couple things are worth pointing out here. Uh, that first... There's no real concern for process uh, if you're focused only on efficiency, right? That that there could be a, a bad or undesirable way of realizing the outcomes of interest in an efficient way, right? With a minimal expenditure of dollars. And that you could end up saying, hey, the process that is quote unquote best, right? The, the most efficient process for realizing this outcome is one that people will be unhappy with, but, you know, too bad, so sad. Uh, and I think there are a few related problems that are worth considering. One of them would be, what if you can't measure the outcome that you're interested in, right? So just think about how we measure student learning or, more broadly, school quality. There are so many things that we don't presently capture. And so if what you're concerned about is maximizing your outcomes and you don't have a great outcome measure, then that can really distort how you're thinking about inputs and the kinds of processes that are in place to try to realize those outcomes. And the final thing that I'll say about this is that, you know, process matters, that we actually do have values. And so if we're thinking only about efficiency, right, we might say, for instance, it's not an efficient allocation of resources to, you know, have extended day programs where we've got educators, right, these would be full-time teachers, being paid more to stick around and run clubs and coach sports and supervise unstructured play for young people, right? Let's hire an instructional aide there. But we could say, well, gosh, don't we value the relationships between adults and young people inside a school? Isn't that a, a valuable process in its own right? And so we do need to always be thinking about, well, what are the processes we value, right? Do we want young people to be happy simply just because, right? Do we want them to have strong relationships with each other and with their teachers just because, um, even if it doesn't lead to increases on these outcome variables that we're trying to measure? Thank you, Jack. I thought you handled that very efficiently. <laughs> Back to thinking like an economist, Berman's book traces the history of the rise of economic reasoning and how it took hold in one policy domain after another, starting as early as the 1950s. But as she points out, what happened in education doesn't quite fit this account. 
education is a really interesting case here because the same sets of people who were introducing this way of thinking into welfare policy, into health policy in the 1960s and early 70s tried to do it in education. And they had a little bit of success, but they really didn't get very far. You know, you have an effort in the early 1960s to create this National Institutes of Education, which were supposed to be kind of the equivalent of the NSF. Somebody said they're going to be a golden gem of rationality for education policy, but the timing was wrong. They didn't quite have the same political support, and it all fell apart by the end of the 70s. In other words, economic reasoning came later to education, and when it did finally arrive, it took hold with a vengeance. You see a lot of these trends in education, but they don't really take off until the 90s and really the late 90s, I think. And I think that happens both for practical reasons that the emergence of policy ideas like charter schools really start to gain traction. And that's very, you got a lot of affinities with these ideas of, you know, let's make education more like a market. Let's, you know, let's leverage the power of competition, those kinds of arguments. And you really see a takeoff in the economics of education as well. For example, the National Bureau of Economic Research, they started their network in health economics in the 1960s. It doesn't start in education until something around 1998 or 99. The combination of that interest from elite economic circles, the new availability of all kinds of new data sources that make new kinds of analysis of education policy as a space possible, and then a new wave of interest from from funders, starting with GATE and sort of expanding from there, really lead education to sort of experience a lot of what happened in other domains. Most of the book is not about education explicitly, but it has all of these implications throughout for education. And one of those implications is about rights. In the United States, you don't have a right to an education. In most states, you do. But there is famously or infamously, or or maybe most people don't even know about it, but you don't have a federal right to an education in this country. And there were opportunities to change that. So for instance, in the late 1950s, the UN General Assembly adopted the Declaration of the Rights of the Child, and among other rights was the right to education. And one of the things that you write about so convincingly in the book is that you can actually choose to have values regardless of what the cost of those values is, that that's a choice. And that similarly, thinking only about efficiency is itself a choice and a value. And with regard to just this very basic thing, whether or not we have a right to an education in this country, it seems like there was a moment and at that exact moment when global institutions and organizations were beginning to think about whether or not education was a fundamental human right, in the United States, we were elevating a different kind of thinking which framed the importance of education not for its inherent value for humanity, but as something that builds human capital. And if it builds human capital, then you can measure its efficiency there, right? What are the returns to the economy versus the cost to taxpayer? And I'm wondering if you can talk through any examples of policies that were adopted in the U.S. where this different kind of thinking was on display, right? Thinking of education as something that was valuable because of its efficiencies rather than for its inherent value. All the stuff that the book talks about very much applies to education policy as a space, you know, and at the same time, I don't talk that much about it, in part because 
it took a surprisingly long time for this stuff to really gain hold in education. In a lot of ways, it didn't take off till the 90s, whereas in these other policy areas, it was much more influential already by the 70s. But you can see these kinds of debates shaping certain decisions in education relatively early. I think here the best example is probably the nature of debates over how we should fund college. These are taking place in the late 60s. So coming right on the heels of that moment where we're sort of focused on rights, focused on the idea of everybody should have access to education, and still very much within this space of kind of assuming that we're going to have inexpensive public higher education that will reach a fair number of people. And this is very much the time when you start to see a subset of economists and people who are sort of committed to this broad way of thinking really start to articulate arguments about why that's not a good idea. And the arguments are all really about benefits for the individual versus public benefit. They're very much not framed in terms of rights. They're very much organized around thinking of the value of education as being about investment in human capital. And then the question is, okay, well, who benefits from that investment? You know, yes, we all benefit, but the individual benefits most from it. Our most devoted listeners may recall that we did an entire episode on the individualized logic of higher education with friend of the show, Marshall Steinbaum. Hey, Marshall. Well, Berman says that it's an example of economic thinking taking hold in education in a way that has had profound consequences. So then you've got a justification for why individuals should be bearing most of the cost of higher education, at least. You know, K-12 was not on the table, although if it had been, who knows what would have what would have happened. So as early as, as the late 1960s, you do see economists who very much consider themselves liberals and who want government to be involved in trying to make the world a better place, but who also say that this is not a great way to spend our money. Individuals should bear more of the cost of this that is wise and and good and is a better use of public funds. And you can see, you know, you do see some other imprints in the Higher Education Act in 1972. You know, at that point is really where you start to get a shift away from government funding colleges to government funding individuals via financial aid. And that it takes a while for things to really change, but that's where you really set the stage for the long expansion of increasing costs of public higher education and shifting that burden towards students rather than paying for it collectively. Have you ever thought about the fact that Americans are entitled to a K-12 education, but have to pony up themselves to go a minute beyond that? Berman says that because Americans had long accepted the idea that public schools are free and anyone can go to them, they were in some ways immune to the pay-for model that took hold in higher ed, at least for now. It's just a relic of what was taken for granted at the time that people started to think about the problem in this way. And I have you know, no doubt that if high school had not been as well-established as a right as it was, you would see very similar debates about, about high school. And I mean, you know, of course, think at the margins you do, and certainly arguments for charters and choice and competition and all those sorts of things are coming out of the same kind of space. But, but the basic idea that, yes, you should be allowed to go to high school without having to pay for it is very much at odds with this way of thinking, at least, you know, without sort of further subjecting it to questions about what the relative costs and benefits are. The thing about economic reasoning is that it kind of takes over everything. Think, for example, about our endless debate about what constitutes a quote-unquote good school, one that consumes my co-host. Well, that debate takes place almost entirely upon terrain defined by economic reasoning. 
Berman says that's because the economic frame essentially forces us to think like an economist, even when we're making arguments about things that are much harder to measure. One thing that that happens in these debates is that people who actually want to push policy forward often end up just reframing their ideas in terms of, you know, a different angle on the same types of economic arguments. So, you know, what you're really interested is in educational equity or justice or something like that. And, you know, you try to figure out, well, how can I, how can I make this case in the way that's going to be compelling to the people in power, which also means buying into the same kind of language. I mean, I think we need those people making those arguments because there is this way in which they are more likely to move people who are committed to that as sort of their baseline way of thinking about the problem. But we need people who are going to be more aggressive than that, to be bolder than that, to really start from the position that says, you know, here's here's what our values are, right? Our value is that everybody in the U.S. should have this kind of access to education. It should look like that, you know, no matter where you are from. It, we do it because it is the right thing to do because it it should be it should be a human right, you know. And then make unrealistic proposals about how to get there. <laughs> you know, you say the things that you think are ridiculous and undoable at the same time that you're sort of building support for them. And, you know, are those ridiculous, undoable things, the ones that are likely to actually make it into policy? But I think, you know, not to make this all about student loans, but I think that debate is a great example of this process. Let's talk about that debate over student loans that is playing out in a heated way at this very moment. Berman says that in many ways, it represents a clash between those who see the student debt crisis as an example of the failure of economic reasoning and those who still can't see the world in any other way. It has been so interesting to watch this debate unfold publicly over the last five years where, you know, a few years ago, the idea of canceling student loan debt was just not on the table at all. And it kind of emerged from activist spaces, really. I mean, it's not coming primarily from academic spaces, I don't think. And it is sort of couched in this idea about rights and the idea that that people shouldn't be tied down by something like this forever. And it's just been so interesting and, you know, occasionally infuriating, but to see this sort of split between people who ostensibly want the same thing and all think that education is valuable and people should have access to it. But if you can't get beyond this way of thinking that the only good policy is the one that directs the right amount of money to the right people in all the right ways, then it's not worth discussing seriously. So, Jack, one of the things I kept thinking as I was reading Beth's book and working on this episode is that, on the one hand, the book barely deals with education. And on the other hand, we are living the book. And it got me thinking about an episode that you and I wanted to do. We really wanted to do this one. And we had a name for it. And the name of the episode was The Data Boys. With a Z. Boys Boys was spelled with a Z, of course. And to me, it (laughs) it so captures kind of this this way of thinking and how the goal of the way of thinking is to kind of crowd out any other way of thinking. And so I wondered if as a special treat, as an indulgence for me, if you would go back and kind of reconstruct what we were thinking about with our our episode on the data boys and maybe tell us why it never got made. (laughs) I think it's it's patently obvious why it never got made. Well, the analogy uh, that we are making there, I think, obviously, is to a boy band. Obvi. <laughs> yeah. Hence the Z. 
Um, and why is that? I've got to kind of reconstruct what we were thinking back when we thought this was so funny and would make a good episode. Um, you know, there's a, a kind of surface level showiness uh, to it, perhaps, not necessarily, but perhaps lacking uh, a level of depth beneath the surface, um, a kind of tapping into the, the fads of a moment, right? A, a popularity that may not be signaling um, some kind of major development in artistic strategy, uh, but rather something that, you know, could be looked back upon with some degree of skepticism. And then I think there's obviously a gendered com component to it. So, you know, when we were thinking about the role of quantitative methodologists working in education policy, we were thinking about a small set of clubbish men, um, and they are predominantly men, and that matters, right? And they're predominantly white men who come largely out of either economics departments or have been trained in, you know, the kind of economic thinking that is increasingly prevalent in education policy programs. And um, the kind of certainty there that, let's say, a pop star might have about their importance uh, and their preeminence uh, in the field. It's important to note that we were having fun here uh, and not necessarily trying to level a devastating critique. Um, but, you know, there's a critique there. There's a critique about who gets to have a say, right? About, about which knowledge and which kinds of thinking have the greatest worth, about who gets a seat at the table. And I think Beth's book showed us, outside of education, of course, uh, but showed us in no uncertain terms that there was a, an insular quality to the rise of a particular kind of thinking that people with particular kinds of connections had clearer access to the mechanisms of power, um, that they were often trained uh, in the same way and uh, were you know, exposed to the same uh, set of mentors and advisors, thought uh, using the same kinds of tools at their disposal, and, and looked down on people who either didn't understand their methods or who used different kinds of methodologies to uh, you know, try to ascertain the value of particular approaches to solving social and economic problems. We couldn't help but ask Berman to weigh in on the subject of data boys and their outsized influence. Spoiler alert, she doesn't name any names. My first thought is that there is this piece of it that is about this particular kind of authority that gets invested, that, that's sort of located in economics departments and gets invested in economics PhDs. And, you know, as a discipline, economics has a very distinctive culture. It's very hierarchical. Everybody knows who the best is, right? Everybody has a very clearly defined of what it means to be an excellent economist. And of course, you know, that changes over time. I don't mean to like fix things too much, but you know, there is this way that this particular kind of training conveys on you a very specific authority that you can take into other places. And then I think that has sort of spills out from there where, you know, you have people who are sort of in the closely related places, right? So maybe it's very data-centric people who are at policy schools or who, you know, who are in ed schools, but are sort of coming from that end of the space. And I do think in particular that 
at the elite ends of the discipline, there's a lot of overlap with other sorts of spaces of power. And so I think that's things like foundations. So it just becomes much easier to sort of go in and talk to program officers and get your voice heard. I think it has to do with the kinds of connections that are sort of pre-existing with policy circles so that it's just not as big a deal to be invited into some space in Washington and, you know, be asked what you think your take on all this is. And so, you know, so I do think that there's this piece that's disciplinary that is connected in a lot of ways to other spheres of influence. You make this really convincing case that Democrats undermined their own language and logic of universalism, rights, equality, and that they became constrained by it, uh, both in terms of how they were thinking about policy as well as what they could actually do. Um, And I was thinking about this slightly broader idea about narrowing our sense of what is possible. And it definitely seems like that has happened with regard to social policy. It certainly seems like that has happened with regard to education policy specifically. And I'm wondering if you can help us think through a little bit, like what would it look like if we broadened our sense of what is possible, if we had a a better imagination Uh, with regard to how we might use policy to make people's lives better? There's a real sea change in terms of what people are willing to put on the table and have serious conversations about in policy spaces relative to what was the case five years ago. Some of that comes from social movements. That's probably the single biggest factor in terms of really moving the needle of what's considered reasonable within policy circles. And I think the protests after George Floyd, the sort of movement for racial justice that follows, that has opened up new kinds of conversations and brought new people to the table in ways that I think do open those doors to have just bigger conversations about, well, maybe we should be doing something that's not just the latest tweak on the same thing we've been doing for 50 years. Berman's book is ultimately really hopeful. She ends by looking at the push to cancel student debt and how the evolving political context has moved President Biden's position. His administration is said to be on the cusp of announcing $10,000 of debt cancellation. Now, that's much less than what a lot of advocates are pushing for, but it's a policy that would have been unthinkable under President Obama. So what happened? Berman says that the introduction of race into the debate about how we pay for higher ed has made the weaknesses in economic reasoning much more apparent. I don't know if this is sort of a turning point, but has changed the nature of some of this debate is, is introducing race into it as well, right? Which is, was never central to these kinds of higher ed funding conversations. And when you can point at the ways that the racial impacts of student loan debt are so disparate, That's another thing that causes the picture of who it's helping and who it's hurting to look a little bit different than if you just kind of purely start with this question of, okay, well, how much is is somebody earning and what does that mean about whether they can afford to repay their debt? And is there some other way potentially this could be more targeted so that it would be more cost effective? There's an important lesson here for advocates of public education at a time when it feels really vulnerable. The discourse around schools may be filled with jargon of choice, competition, and efficiency, but it doesn't have to be that way. Berman says we should take inspiration from the activists who have turned the debate about how we pay for college on its head. 
something that just seemed politically beyond the pale was very clearly articulated by a committed network of people who just kept looking for opportunities to make that case and, you know, maybe sort of being really clear on what the fundamental values are and being willing to articulate those is important, not only for getting something done in the long run, but for drawing people to your to your cause, you know, to motivating people to sign on to something that maybe they can believe in, which I think is much less often the case with these sort of more technocratic tweaks that we're more likely to see in real policy debates. That was Beth Pop Berman. She's a sociologist at the University of Michigan and the author of a book that we can't say enough good things about. It's called Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about how economic thinking continues to hold sway over education policy and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Data boys may be involved, and that's boys with a Z, of course. Just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. So Jack, one of Beth's insights that I thought was just so interesting was this notion that somehow the Democrats get trapped by economic reasoning. You know, they're stuck in a particular box, but that conservatives are much more flexible and are able to sort of take it or leave it depending on what else it is they're hoping to accomplish. And it just happens that as I was working on this episode, I came across an absolutely perfect example of this. There's a new document out from a project of the American Enterprise Institute. They call it their Conservative Education Reform Network. It is uh, uh, replete with luminaries whose names will be familiar to some listeners, names like Frederick Hess, friend of the show Andy Smerick. Um, Max Eden, and they lay out 22 ideas that conservative education reformers should consider pushing for at the state level. And what I thought was just so fascinating was how completely sort of arbitrary the ideas are with respect to economic reasoning. That if it's something that involves lowering the pay of teachers, for example, they're all about economic reasoning. Um, If it's the case for vocational education, for example, they're all about economic reasoning, but they'll abandon it completely if it comes to this much more ideological case that they're making for, um, you know, basically defining education more and more as something that's completely individual, that we're going to charter individual teachers, that we're, you know, we're going to run micro schools out of the homes of individual families, that schools are going to be centered around teaching particular virtues, right? That's not an efficiency argument at all. That has nothing to do with economic reasoning. And yet, as I, like, as I read through each of those 22 platforms, you know, I was imagining uh, Democrats trying to respond to them and being stuck in their economic reasoning box. Yeah, it reminded me actually of something we reference all the time on this show, which is a conversation that we had with David Menefee-Leiby about um, treaties between uh, the Republicans and the Democrats. And one of the things that he identified there is that, you know, for the past 
quarter century, Democrats have essentially been seeking to carve out some common ground between themselves and Republicans. And it just so happens that Republicans then used that common ground to then advance their own interests, right? Essentially use that common ground as a stepping stone. I think that shapes my thinking in looking at the case that Beth is making here in this book about how Democrats adopted this approach, right? Using economic thinking to you know, try to solve social and economic problems. And that really that, that is in many ways an attempt to carve out a middle ground for what is pragmatically achievable. But if you think about that middle ground as then, right, being between them and you know, people on the other side of the aisle who are, for all intents and purposes, the opposition, um, then it very much has them essentially facing backwards in their uh, in their agenda, right? That their values would be on the other side of them. And it can become very difficult then for them to try to advance those values using a set of strategies that in many ways are compromise strategies. Um, and and that might be effective if both sides were approaching it in the same way, right? Let's carve out a set of values that we can all agree upon. Let's set, uh, you know, some terms um, that all of us can buy into. And let's use some strategies that we all view as being valid uh, and, you know, reasonable in terms of pursuing these shared values. But if they're not shared... Um, and you continue to adhere to them, right, then you really are just limiting what you can accomplish. And, you know, I think that we continue to see this today with the Democratic Party. Another thing that we've talked about a lot on this show is the lack of a kind of clear, ambitious, and coherent vision from the Democratic Party, not just in education, but with regard to solving social and economic problems. Um, And so, you know, I, I think that we'll probably catch some heat from uh, listeners who are political scientists here. But, you know, I think there is there is something very powerful in thinking about the problematic nature of a two-party system where one party is seeking to compromise in, you know, potentially good faith and the other one is not. No, I think you're absolutely right because I've been thinking about this a lot as I look at local and state level elections and and I I've written about what happened in in New Hampshire and how counter the results are to this larger narrative about the sort of the angry parents following the Republican Party to the right. And that what you're seeing in state after state is that this is not what's happening at all, that there is a very small minority of of parents who that turns out to be true about. And so for me, the animating question is, well, why, why is it so hard for the Democrats to capitalize on this? Why are they so reluctant to talk about this stuff when the Republican position is so unpopular? And I think that Beth's book really answers that question. You know, that they still, they continue to view the world and the education world in particular through this, you know, like very limiting economic lens. And and as a result, now that it's time to really step up and make a bold, you know, a real, like a, 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 a big picture argument about about why public education and what it rep- represents really matters. They all they have is their economic toolbox. 
Yeah, and I think one more thing worth mentioning here is the fact that in many ways, the party's leadership represents a set of people who are not entirely like uh, the people who they represent, right? That they think differently, that they have different values, that they have interests that are actually quite distinct from the interests of the people who they're trying to bring along uh, on, you know, this this mission that is ostensibly, you know, a, a pretty broad-based one and ostensibly taps into the needs and concerns of working people and families of color. And yet, you know, if you look at the top, you're talking about affluent white people, you know, and, and it's, it's not just all white people, but you're talking about an affluent class um, that in many ways has been really well served by this approach to policy and that stands to lose a lot if they were actually to ambitiously pursue a more egalitarian vision. Oh, who cares about all of that? Let's just go after the teachers unions instead. <laughs> well, Jack, we've come to that part of the episode that I know you look forward to week after week. This is where I surprise and sometimes stun you with the topic <laughs> of our In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. And this time I've got one that I know you're going to like. Are you ready? What if I say no? You're going to go anyway, so it doesn't well, matter. Hear me out first, and then <laughs> and then I'll, I'll let you decide. Uh-huh. So listening to you talk about the data boys just made me want to talk about them even more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. Let's go. <laughs> okay, so for our regular listeners, of course you know that we rely on your support to keep the podcast going. If you go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, you'll see a list of all the extras you can get just by supporting us with a few dollars each month. That's an economic argument, isn't it, Jack? <laughs> I'm not sure how efficient it is, though. Well, for our listeners who are motivated by more than economic concerns... There are many ways to support the show, and since you will be investing something here, this would be your time rather than your dollars, I will say it is possible to be efficient in the allocation of those resources. Um, You know, so probably the least efficient way is by walking through the neighborhood and telling everybody how much you love the show, though that would be great. I would be highly supportive of that. But, you know, leverage technology when available, so uh, use social media. If you use Twitter, tag the show's handle at Have You Heard Pod. You can, of course, send your favorite episodes to people. Make sure that you are a subscriber so that you get the latest episode whenever it's released. Um, You know, we continue to get great ideas for shows from you, but I'll be completely honest, we've got such a backlog of those at this point that just, just a friendly note is, uh, is a way of contributing to the show. Um, you know, that we run on positive energy here. That is, that's the gasoline uh, that keeps this machine firing. And, uh, and I'll say, uh, we get a lot of miles per gallon out of that. Um, and then finally, uh, a new offering in the Patreon this week is the Carnival of Conversation. Uh, so this is, I've partnered with a bunch of Carnival Americans to, uh, to engage in in uh, just a, a really wide-ranging um, spectacle of fun. So that's uh, $1,000 a month, gets you access, and you get a bucket of popcorn with that. I was hoping, Jack, that you meant Carnival Cruise Ships and it meant that you were actually going out to sea. <laughs> we, I, I could see us doing a uh, Have You Heard Cruise. And we'd have to get one of those really small boats or maybe one of those yeah, inflatable I, dinghies. 
Yeah, I think that's about it. We're headed into the weeds to talk data boys for our Patreon subscribers. Everyone else will be back here in a couple of weeks. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>